Section 76, the vision. This is yeah, exciting. I'm excited about this one. Learning a little bit about uh, what it means to enter into the celestial kingdom, what's required. We're seeing the testimony of Joseph Smith regarding Jesus Christ. I love those verses. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Welcome, everyone. Before we get into our discussion, should we follow up on what we read? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So today we're in Doctrine and Covenants section 76. In this section, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon are working on the Bible translation and they see a vision of the kingdoms of glory. They also see Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father in vision and are shown the fall of Satan. Mm -hmm. They also witness the miracle of the resurrection, specifically how the faithful will come forth in the morning of the first resurrection. Now, there's a lot of different things obviously we can talk about in this section, but we're gonna focus in on two, uh, what it means to live a celestial life and judgment and mercy. So in order to help us dive deeper into the scriptures today, specifically section 76, and also better understand the historical context, we have invited our good friend, Garrett Dirkmott. We're so excited to have you, Garrett. I'm excited to be here. It'd be great. So Garrett, you're an associate professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. Yes. You are also a writer and historian for the Joseph Smith Papers. Yes. Can you just tell us a little bit about that before we move on? Oh, uh, the Joseph Smith Papers project was uh, designed to publish all of Joseph Smith's writings, all of his letters, all of his, his sermons, all of his revelations like, like Doctrine and Covenants section 76. You are also co-author of the book, From Darkness Unto Light. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that book as well? It's a book that talks about Joseph Smith's uh, process of translating the Book of Mormon and, and how did he get it published? Why did it, what, what were the hoops he had to jump through? It's an excellent book. It's a award-winning book. So thank you for your efforts in that as well. Mm -hmm. Done a lot of great work for the church. So thank you. So before we jump into our uh, different discussion topics, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what kind of stood out to you in DNC 76 or what do you think is significant or we need to know going into it? Doctrine and Covenants section 76 is so crucial to what we believe as Latter-day Saints. It, uh, it is something that that changes everything we know about who we are and what's going to happen after this life. And Wilford Woodruff, you know, himself, you know, said that, that that revelation teaches us more than anything else. It was so important to early church members that they all called it the vision. Um, you probably are used to, whenever you hear someone say Joseph's vision, you're probably used to thinking of the first vision. First vision is very important. But to church members in the 19th century, whenever they were talking about Joseph's vision, they were talking about this vision because it taught so much about the afterlife, taught so much about your own life. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Excellent. So maybe we can get right into it and, and focus specifically first on uh, living a celestial life. What do we need to know, historically speaking, in order to understand kind of what's going on in this? What's, what's the historical context of this vision? Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon are going through the Bible. Joseph is translating as Sidney Rigdon is serving as his scribe. And as they come uh, to John, they have a question about this idea that, that there will be those who are resurrected to, to life and those that, are, that, that aren't. And, and this question about rewards in the afterlife. If you're rewarded uh, according to your works, well, what does, that, what does that mean? They are meditating upon this. They're thinking upon it, and they have this vision burst upon them. So this vision is actually broken down into a few things. We have a slide here that just kind of breaks down the vision for us. So you see verses 20 through 24 is the vision of the glory of the sun. Then we have the vision of the fall of Lucifer, then the suffering of the sons of perdition, celestial glory, terrestrial glory, and then celestial glory. So there are a number of visions here. Joseph is given the vision, told to write, given another part of the vision, told to write. So he continues to go through this process. You know, this idea of the celestial kingdom to, to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it just kind of rolls off our tongue. But for people living in the time of Joseph Smith, I mean, right here, we're talking 18, early 1830s. The, the church has only been around now for not even quite two years. 
years, and, and all of a sudden Joseph comes up with this. Like, what kind of sentiment is, is coming up as a result of this? DNC 76 is saying that those who go to the celestial kingdom will become gods, and that is certainly radical for its time, um, as well as the, the other aspects of the revelation that talk about what happens with those who maybe don't quite make exaltation, who fall short. Yeah, I love in verse 69 of this revelation, it says, and these are they who are just men made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who wrought out this perfect atonement through the shedding of his own blood. So we see not only this great vision of all these people who are going to receive some degree of glory, but we also recognize that it is through their covenants with Jesus Christ and fulfilling these things that it is possible. It just ties in this beautiful mercy, covenants, justice work into this beautiful picture of more mercy and more people receiving, receiving the glory of God than any person at this time, I think, or even today could even begin to imagine. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's also quite a few things that we have to do on our part, right? Yeah. And as I was looking through these kind of lists, a few things stuck out to me, and I want to ask your thoughts on them. We're talking about, you know, those who are going to enter into a terrestrial kingdom. And it says here in 79, these are they who were not valiant in the testimony of Jesus, wherefore they obtain not the crown over the kingdom of our God. So this idea of the necessity of being valiant in the testimony of Christ. So I'm curious, how do you read this? What exactly does it mean to be valiant in the testimony of Jesus Christ? Yeah, Caleb. I was just thinking about how I could be valiant with my testimony in Christ, right? And what came to mind was sharing it, was talking to everybody about Jesus Christ. And we know that as members of the church, that's a big part of our responsibility of gathering Israel, right? Mm -hmm. Is sharing this gospel with everyone and not just keeping it. So to be valiant in your testimony, you understand it as you need to share it a lot? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there another way to understand that? Is that how everybody's understanding it? What do you think? I think it means is do the two great commandments. We love God and we love our neighbor as ourself. If we do that and we truly do love both of them, then we will strive to do all that we can to do what is right and to follow our Savior. Thank you so much. Great insight. I have a quote by Elder Maxwell that maybe we can yeah. that'll help with this discussion if mm -hmm. you would like. Elder Maxwell says, uh, to be valiant in one's testimony of Jesus includes striving to become more like him in mind, heart, and attributes. Becoming this manner of men and women is the ultimate expression of orthodoxy. I love where he just says it's the striving to become. Yeah, and I like that idea because at least in my life, when I look back on my testimony of certain things, sometimes it's you know up here, sometimes it's down there. And I'm, I'm hesitant sometimes to, to read valiant in terms of it has to be always up here with every doctrine or every practice or whatever. Like I like the idea that there's some wiggle room and it's not just about what you believe, but the, the manner in which that's affecting your life and affecting your character. I think we try to avoid the, the, the things that are not good for us, but I think we're, we're intentionally doing our best to yeah, do yeah. it is right. Yeah. If we look at section 76, the Doctrine and Covenants, and especially if we look at verse 30, uh, the Lord is actually talking about Satan. And, and we're talking about the sons of perdition. And it says, and we saw a vision of the suffering of those with whom he made war and overcame, referring to Satan. And who are these people? He says, for thus came the voice of the Lord unto us. Thus saith the Lord concerning all those who know my power and have been made partakers thereof and suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome. I bring that up because if you turn your scriptures to verses 50 through 70, we can see some of those important parts that are associated with those who receive the celestial kingdom. I love that in verse 60, it says, and they shall overcome all things. So it's, I think it's an interesting paradox that you have those who are, in the, who are sons of perdition who I would say are so limited, but those are the ones who are overcome by Satan. But on the opposite, those who are receiving the celestial kingdom are those who overcome the world. Garrett, can you talk to us a little bit about, I know I'm just kind of mentioned that randomly, but even the sons of perdition on that, 
this idea of perdition, right, it's, it's applied primarily to these, these spirits who, who follow Satan when, he, when he's cast out. One of the things that Doctrine and Covenants section 76 does is it talks about the reality of Satan and that there were those who followed him, those spirits who followed Satan in the pre-mortal life. They did not sin ignorantly. These spirits were in the presence of God. This was not a matter of if only they knew more, they wouldn't have sinned. This was a matter of they did know all and with that knowledge still chose to follow Satan. When it makes reference to people that are sons of perdition in mortality, it has to be people who've come to that same level. Right. As Joseph Smith explains, it has to be people who have had the heavens open to them, who know God, they know who Jesus is, but they choose Satan instead of Jesus. Like to have that kind of knowledge of God, it's so few as opposed to those who are going to receive any degree of glory, I think, especially the celestial kingdom. So Barbara was talking about, we obviously have requirements to get into the celestial kingdom. She mentioned some of them, uh, overcoming by faith, receiving the testimony of Jesus, believing on his name, being baptized, etc., sealed by the spirit of holy promise, holy spirit of promise, um, that these are the just people made perfect. As you reflect on the kind of things that Heavenly Father expects of us in order to inherit the celestial kingdom, what kind of thoughts come to your mind? What kind of concerns? What kind of questions do you have? I love what has been said about overcoming versus being overcome, and then also bring it back to what was talked about, about being, being valiant. And it reminds me of a quote that I love. I think it was Lynn G. Robbins said, success is not the absence of failure, but going from failure to failure without any loss of enthusiasm. And I think that's kind of what God expects of his children who are going to make it to the celestial kingdom. They don't have to be perfect along the whole way, but just as they go, they should be valiant in trying and in desiring the right things and hoping to overcome. It's beautiful. Thank you, Excellent. Emma. Thanks. I love one more verse. If I could just share it quickly where it just says in verse 94, uh, they who dwell in the presence of the ch are the church of the firstborn and they see as they are seen and know as they are known, having received of his fullness and of his grace. Uh, and he makes them equal in power and in might and in, in dominion. And I just love this idea of those who end up at the celestial kingdom are not confused at all. Satan has no ability to confuse the mind. The, the, the noise is gone. Those who are there see clearly, understand. They are wise. They've been obedient. They have a high level of intelligence based upon their obedience and coming unto Christ. These are people who see clearly as opposed to those who perhaps are looking through a glass darkly. So this has been an excellent discussion of living a celestial life. Now maybe we can focus a little bit more on judgment and mercy. Actually, we have a really good question from one of our at-home audience members. Let's look at that question. Hi, I'm Thomas Lloyd, and I'm from Elgin, Oklahoma. I've recently moved here, and I've made some friends who I think would benefit from learning about the gospel. I've wanted to teach them, but I don't know how to go about doing that. So my question is, how do you teach people about the plan of redemption and judgment after death in a way that is well-received? All right, great that was a question. great question from Thomas, yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you, Thomas, for asking that question. Garrett, we're just gonna put you on the spot and turn it over to you for a second. Well, first of all, it's a great desire, Thomas, to wanna share the gospel with your friends there. I think sometimes we think about uh, the, the plan of salvation as uh, very limiting. And, and so we, we, we think, well, because we're all striving for the celestial kingdom that you know everyone else is just left outside of the room. And, and I wish we would view the, the plan of salvation and Doctrine and Covenants section 76 in, in the other way. In Joseph Smith's time, Christians believed 
that if you did not accept Jesus in this life, it didn't matter the reason why you didn't. If your parents didn't teach you, if you happened to be born in another country, it didn't matter. If you didn't accept Jesus, you would go to hell and hell would last forever and you would be in, in agony and torment forever. And very few people then would ever actually be saved from hell. The beautiful aspect of Doctrine and Covenants section 76 is that it is a plan of mercy. It's a plan of redemption of nearly all mankind. We talked about the sons of perdition who refused to be redeemed, who refused to accept Jesus, okay. But almost no one is in that category, right? The, the part of, of Doctrine and Covenants section 76 that really profoundly speaks to me is just how all-encompassing the atonement is. If you go to uh, verses 103 through 106, this is talking about the people who go to the telestial kingdom. And it starts off kind of like your average fire and brimstone sermon. These are they who are liars and are sorcerers and adulterers and whoremongers and whosoever loves and makes a lie. These are they who suffer the wrath of God on earth. These are they who suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. These are they who are cast down to hell and suffer the wrath of almighty God. Up to that point in the vision, in Joseph Smith's explanation, it sounds pretty close to what other Christians perceive of hell as being. And you'll notice what comes right after that, until the fullness of times. This is a radical teaching that God gives the world through Joseph Smith, that even those who are the vilest of sinners, they will suffer for their sins. But at some point, even they will be resurrected and they will inherit a kingdom of glory. That is a beautiful doctrine, a doctrine of mercy to all of God's children. Before we came to this earth, you know that every single person you see at some point in the pre-mortal life did accept Jesus. They did accept Jesus as their savior. And by virtue of that, eventually, they are all going to go to a kingdom of glory. And as Joseph explains, verses 89 and 90, right? Thus we saw in heavenly vision the glory of the telestial, which surpasses all understanding. In, in 1843, Joseph Smith rewrote DNC 76 into a poetic version um, that was published in the Times and Seasons. And in that poetic version, he phrased it even, even more, I think, uh, precisely. He said, and thus I beheld the vision of heaven, the telestial glory, dominion, and bliss. He uses the word bliss to describe the lowest of the levels of this heaven. I, I think one of the things that we should, we should shout from the rooftops is that we believe in an atonement from our Savior that is so all-encompassing that everyone will eventually be at least in a kingdom of bliss but there's something so much greater, right? Exaltation. Maybe we can, I mean, how do you respond to that? What do you think after hearing that? So I think for me, um, the Christian world views Jesus Christ as he is our, he has saved us, therefore we're good and that is it. Whereas it's a plan, he's our exemplar. He's somebody who can help us become something that we never would have become without him. So not only are we saved, but we're able to become a new creature in Christ, like Paul talks about, to where we're not the same individual we were two years ago or five years ago. And so that's why I love the kingdom of glory. It's like, yeah, everyone will obtain that celestial glory, but Christ is so much more than that. He's there to help us 
become our best selves, to become like him. Thanks for sharing. I would just say that I think when we talk to people, especially like friends we have, about the plan of salvation, they might be thinking that um, they have to prove themselves to God and why they would be deserving of it. But I think when you explain to them that um, we have a Heavenly Father uh, who loves us and wants the best for us, and that we have a Savior who has had an atonement for each and every one of us individually, and it applies to each of us personally. God loves his children so much, he didn't make a mistake. He, he didn't just say, every, I'm just gonna have my favorite few. Everyone who desires is going to be there. So a question I had, something that we often talk about in the context of mercy is also justice. And we get a sense in uh, this section as well as elsewhere in scripture, the criteria by which we're gonna be judged. Um, so we're told we're gonna be judged by our words, our works, our thoughts, and desires. Now, I mean, just take a second to reflect on your words, your works, your thoughts, and your desires, and God being aware of all of them, and God judging you according to them. How does that make you feel? So, on my mission, I have never felt so inadequate as an individual, mm -hmm. <laughs> because I'm representing the Lord himself, right? Um, but I think something that that helped me understand, knowing that I was going to be judged on everything I did wrong, mm -hmm. was that it was okay, that I was imperfect, and that I needed to rely on my Savior more fully. And so instead of focusing on my inadequacies, it allowed me to focus on His perfection mm -hmm. and to just try and focus on the good that He does. And as I focused on the good that He has done for me, I was able to forget myself and to become better. Yeah. Another way to look at it too is that, well, yes, we're going to be judged on everything we do wrong. We're also going to be judged on everything we do right, and, <laughs> including our thoughts and desires. And while there are plenty of thoughts and desires and words and works that I'm ashamed of, I think when, I'm, when I die, at least I hope to be able to get up there and look God in the eye and say, like, I really tried. Like, you knew my heart. You knew how hard I was trying, even though I failed a lot. And knowing that he'll take that into account is extremely comforting to me. Because for all my weaknesses and flaws, like, I really do try every single day. And I feel confident looking God in the eye and saying, I'm trying my best. Like, you, you know me. You know I'm trying. Um, so I can take some confidence in that. But. And President Nelson has a, has a great quote on, on what, in a sense, what, what it takes. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come follow me. Now, as president of his church, I plead with you who have distanced yourself from the church and with you who have not yet really sought to know the Savior's church has been restored. Do the spiritual work to find out for yourselves and please do it now. Time is running out. And in addition, in the same talk, he actually makes this statement. He says, the anguish of my heart is that many people I love, whom I admire and whom I respect, decline his invitation, referring to Christ's invitation to make covenants with him. And then he says, they ignore the pleadings of Jesus Christ when he beckons, come follow me. I understand why God weeps. I also weep, he says. So I think that we have this, this real truth and I, and I appreciate this and this mercy that we're talking about is so expansive. It's beyond what most people can understand. But at the same time, there is this law and this judgment of God where he says, there are certain covenants that do need to be made. And I want my people to become like me. I want them to be bound to me. I want to help my children to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But in order to do so, they have to make specific covenants. How do we teach that without putting people down? So I think that your, your question is a good one and it, it aligns to the, the mercy parts of this section because the beauty of the restored gospel is that all people, whether, whether they have heard of the gospel or not, will have an opportunity to. 
I think it actually goes to the question that the gentleman from Oklahoma asked. Yeah. The fairness and the beauty of the mercy of all of that is that whether in this life or in the next, all people have an opportunity to hear the gospel and have an opportunity to accept it. And that all of the works and these covenants that they need to make, they will have an opportunity to receive all of those. That's beautiful. And I, I, I appreciate that. Everyone will have that opportunity. And I love, one of the things I love in this section is speaking of the opportunity, the opportunity comes because of Jesus Christ. And I love the testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith. In verse 22, 23, and 24, he says, and now after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him, the worlds are and were created and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. I'm going to put Garrett on the spot here once again, because I've heard Garrett talk about his testimony. Garrett has spent more time than the average person by far reading and understanding <laughs> the writings and teachings of Joseph Smith. Maybe tell us a little bit more about, again, what you did with the context of what you've been able to study and know. Well, working for the Joseph Smith Papers Project, essentially our job was every single day to to read everything that Joseph Smith ever wrote. Uh, you know, all of his letters, all of his sermons, all of his revelations, the ones that were published, the ones that aren't published. And, and you got to have a real sense of, of who Joseph Smith was. You got to see how, how much he loved other people. You got to see how important a quality of mercy was to him as a person. Joseph rejoiced over the idea of salvation being brought to more people. Obviously, we live in a world where, where you, you, you know, Moroni's promise to Joseph that his name would be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues is, is certainly being fulfilled. Uh, you're, you're one Google search away or, or, or one angry neighbor away from someone telling you the real truth about Joseph Smith. A lot of times people couch that in the sense of, if only you had read more, if only you'd read what I've read, then you'd know he wasn't really a prophet. I've even had people ask me questions like, well, so since you were studying all of this, come on, you probably read some stuff that made you go, oh boy, I, I don't know if I believe anymore. I, I can't forcefully enough say that it's actually the opposite. The more you study uh, the writings of Joseph, the more certain you are that he is a prophet of God. I find the argument that, oh, if only you've, you've read what I've read, you wouldn't believe. I, I don't know what in particular that person might be referring to when they talk to you about it, but I'm pretty sure it's something that I've also read. And I can tell you that I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. And, and that matters a lot to me because that means that he really did see Jesus. I had a father who passed away a few years ago um, he was my hero, and I know that I'm going to see my dad again because I know that Joseph Smith saw God. The reason why these things matter, this is the kingdom of God on earth. I can only state as emphatically as I can that, yes, I'm a historian and, and I've, you know, I have a PhD in history and I've studied these things, but it is through the Holy Spirit that anyone can know. The Spirit can speak to your soul and that, that will tell you that Joseph Smith was a prophet, that Jesus is the Christ, and that this is God's true church in a way that um, my poor words certainly couldn't. 
Here, I, I really can't thank you enough. We, we appreciate your, your understanding of the prophet in a time when we need to understand this better. And so a challenge for all of us too is to do what Garrett is saying and continue to study the words of the prophet and ask the Lord for the gift of the Holy Ghost as you are trying yourself to understand better, not only the vision, but Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. He is a prophet of God. We testify of that together as well. So again, thank you, Garrett. Yeah. And we'd like to thank you in the audience as well. Thank you for your insights, your questions, your comments, your stories, everything. It's been wonderful having you here today. And to those of you at home, thank you for your comments and questions and insights that you share with us via social media. We'd love to have you in the studio sometime, but if you can't, we hope you'll join us next week for Come Follow Up. Thanks. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.